Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You know, every, every week we do this uh, short greeting time, and it may just seem like a perfunctory thing we do, but we have this place set up almost like a theater where if you look at the way the seats are arranged, it seems like everything is supposed to happen up here and you're supposed to just be watching up here. That's not really the most important thing that happens at church. But it's this one another and the connection you make with God that is the whole reason you come. And so each Sunday when we have a chance to greet each other, let that be a part of the service where you recognize you're not in this room by yourself. It's not just you and Jesus. You could do that at home all by yourself. You don't need to come out to Hoffman Estates to do that. But when we come out here, it is the fact that we worship with one another that really matters here. And so when we greet each other, really look at the person you're saying hello to. Um, if you're an introvert, this will be a stretching time for you, I know. But one day in seven... I challenge you, break through that introversion and just look at your brothers and sisters and acknowledge we are worshiping together. Amen? Man, the world is fractured. The church has to be one. Well, it's been a while since I've taken the pulpit. I'm not sure I know how to do this anymore. I'm going to try. And I'm going to do something really strange because last Sunday, Pastor Jeff preached a wonderful message from the miracle of Jesus in feeding the 5,000. I don't think this has happened ever in the history of Harvest, but this Sunday I'm going to preach from the same story. And I'm going to do it in a way I hope won't put you to sleep because he really focused capably on the humility of Jesus in that story and the importance of getting away. I'm going to focus on another whole aspect of that story. So hopefully, even though it's the same story, you'll kind of catch a different emphasis. This is the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. There are only 11 events in the life of Jesus and his ministry that are recorded in all four Gospels, and this is one of them. Eight of those 11 events all are about the last week of his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and so there are only three other events recorded in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is one of them. It's got something important in there to say to us. And because it's recorded through four different perspectives, we have a pretty robust picture of the events of that day, the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the most familiar miracles. But in order to appreciate this miracle properly, you got to go back in time a little bit and see the context. What was going on in the life of Jesus and his 12 disciples just before this great miracle happened? Because if you see that, the full weight of this miracle will really begin to touch you, maybe inspire you, and uh, push you in some really important ways in your spirit. Just prior to this miracle, Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples, on their first solo ministry tour. Before, every time they had gone out, he'd been with them, and he'd been doing most of the teaching and the healing and all that, and they would just watch and learn. This time, it's like the, if you're ever studied to be a pilot, it's your first solo flight. It, how many of you have had an experience like that where you watch someone, you shadowed someone? My dad's a, a surgeon, so I know from his stories that the first time that you go from being a medical student 
to actually doing your own surgery, it is terrifying. You're looking around like, you're going to just let me cut this person by myself? And even though you've seen it a hundred times, you feel confident when it's your turn to go, it's a whole different experience. So he'd sent these 12 men out. And their mission was to just walk from village to village throughout Galilee, doing ministry in the pattern that Jesus had done. And they were to go out in pairs, in teams of two, and they were supposed to carry nothing with them, but live entirely on the generosity of other people's donations. They were supposed to preach the gospel, cast out demons, and heal the sick. Now, even the first of those assignments is kind of daunting today. If I were to send each of you guys out in teams of two to cover Hoffman Estates house by house and just preach the gospel, you're like, uh-huh, I don't know if I could do that. But imagine if we added, oh, and by the way, if anyone has a demon, cast it out. And if they're sick, make sure they're not sick when you leave their house. I'd just be like, well, how are we supposed to do that? And he sends them out to do this. And so they go out, having learned from his example, and they come back really, really excited because as they did ministry, God moved. So in Mark chapter 6, by the way, I should, uh, I should note the title of the message is Running on Empty. You'll see why. Right now, I could just picture that phrase alone, that title, might trigger something in some of you. Running on empty. I'm not going to ask you to show of hands, but... I wonder how many of you are feeling that like right now as you came to church today. So they return from this ministry tour, and I'm going to borrow largely from Mark's version of this miracle, but I'm going to also interact with the other Gospels a little bit. In Mark 6, verses 30 to 31, Mark says that the apostles returned to Jesus from the ministry tour and told them all they had done and taught. If you've ever come home from a conference or a mission trip full of incredible stories of what you experienced, what you did, and you're really, really charged up. You know that feeling where you're just bubbling over, your words can't keep pace with all of your memories, and you're trying to tell your friends and family, and they're just looking at you like, all right, I get it, it was kind of good. But in your heart, it was just unbelievable, and you're tripping over yourself. You know that feeling? That's exactly what the disciples were feeling. Adrenaline was pumping because they had come up to people who were demon-possessed and just said, in the name of Jesus, demon leave and the demon left and like whoa it worked and they came up to people who were medically ill this is not figurative symbolic illness they were actually sick like doctors sick and they would pray over them and these people would be healed this doesn't happen every day it's not a reliable 100 percent guarantee but when it happens the hairs on your neck stand up you realize you've just witnessed something that is not of this world Decay is of this world. Loss is of this world. That is the world, this broken, messed up, terrible world we live in. And the reversal of those things is not normal. And yet they'd witnessed it again and again in this very special season of ministry. So they were charged up. But Jesus could see beyond their excitement that the experience they just had really drained them. How many of you know that after the adrenaline rush of a great experience, you have a crash? And then, only then, when the adrenaline fades, you just realize how drained, how depleted you feel. Anyone who's ever done ministry in any way knows that feeling. And if your job demands a lot of you, you know that feeling at quitting time every day. And so Jesus sees past 
their excitement. He hears them out, but then Jesus said, hey, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because so many people were coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they were excited, but it was clear to Jesus these men needed self-care. And so he calls them away. And by the way, every single time resting from work to go away to a quiet place to recuperate, to recover, to reflect, every time that happens, it's always Jesus' idea, never people's idea, other people's. It's always Jesus initiating that time of retreat. So we should never mischaracterize God as a slave driver who values hard work, hard work, no rest, forget yourself, deny your flesh. He does say those things at times. But Jesus always was mindful of the need for self-care and retreat. So he invites his friends to go away with him. And Luke tells us it's to a quiet, a quiet village named Bethsaida near the water. He says, let's go there and let's rest and reflect together. Now, you should also know that the disciples were not the only one who were drained. While they were gone on their ministry, Jesus had received the devastating news that his relative, John the Baptist, had been unjustly murdered by the king. The king's name was Herod, and he and his wife Herodias had an immoral relationship where they were both committing adultery when they first became a couple, and Herodias happened to be Herod's brother's wife at the time. So he was cheating with his brother's wife, and then they became married. This was against Jewish law. It was against Jewish custom. It was against all societal propriety, and yet they did it. And John the Baptist, not being a coward, was very open about his criticism of what they were doing. And Herodias didn't like that. She bore a grudge. She was a vengeful, bitter woman. And so one day at a party, when King Herod was so moved by, by Herodias' daughters dancing. He said, ask me for anything, I'll give it to you. And Herodias saw her chance. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Jesus hears this news of the grotesque, horrible way in which his relative has died. And what's even more disturbing is the total injustice of why and how his relative had lost his life. I don't know about you, but grief and anger mixed together really drain the human spirit. It's a really, really heavy burden to bear. I've walked with some of you. I know that some of us right now are in a season like that. And it's a strange mingling of emotions, but you're deeply, deeply sad over what is lost in your life. And you're outraged over the unfairness of the whole thing how unprovoked it is, and you're wearing those two things together, and they have this ability to completely drain the human spirit and leave you totally hollowed out, nothing left. So that's the state that Jesus is in as he says, guys, you're not the only ones who need to get away. I just need to be alone with you for a time. I need to rest. I need to reflect. On top of all that, while they're... Their popularity was growing among the people. Those with real power in their society were becoming more and more committed to their destruction. They could feel the tension in the air. And so you can imagine how needed this time of getting away was. If you've ever been there, you know how even as you're in the car heading towards this retreat, 
how desperately you need to break away from everything and be still and just heal and think about it. Be alone even. And so they're headed off, but then the next two verses say, so they left by the boat for the quiet place where they could be alone. This is just how it goes. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. So they're trying to get away to retreat for rest and reflection. And the people, driven by their desperate need, see them trying to get away. And they're like, look, they're escaping. And they run ahead and they intercept them at the retreat site. So they arrive in Bethsaida. And instead of peace and quiet, they're greeted by a tumultuous crowd. And it's not just an irritation. They see how desperately this crowd needs the love and the touch of God. And so this crew is stuck in that same place that many of us exactly have been stuck at, where you're in that place, that intersection, where you desperately need care for yourself, but you're so moved by the needs of other people, you want to care for them, and yet you're totally unempty. You want to get there, but there's no gas in the tank, and you're like, what do I do here? Because I need to be away. I need just to be away from everyone. And yet when I see them, I can't kill my heart, just go, whatever, that's their problem. They were moved by this. Have you ever been stuck in that place where the two sides of you, the love for others and the love for yourself, are at war within? It is dangerous to pretend you're such a noble person. You're like, forget me, I'll always put others first. Don't do that. There's nothing noble in pretending you're not human. Some of us are wired that way to put others first repeatedly. That's not a bad thing, but be careful that you're honest about that. Because you can push yourself to a point where you become exactly the opposite of who you want to be. So they're stuck in that place of tension. And now all eyes are on Jesus because he's the leader. It's his call. Have you ever been at a place where after a long work week, you go to this event you don't want to be at and you endure the whole thing and it's just about done and as you're getting ready to leave, someone comes up to you and your, your partner and goes, hey, some of us are getting together for drinks after you. You want to come? And you look to your spouse and you're like, please say no, please say no, please just say no. I can't right now. And your partner goes, awesome, yes, we'll be there. And you're like, I hate you. Why would you say yes to that? Don't you see my face? I need this. Let's just go home. And so all eyes are on Jesus, and they're seeing the crowds. And they're like, please. And so what they're hoping, I think, if I read between the lines, is that Jesus would go, hey, folks, we really appreciate how much you have need. I know you journeyed a long way. Listen, we're all really tired. Why don't we all get some sleep, and in the morning we'll gather here again. I'm sure that's what they were longing to hear. If they had any leader other than Jesus, that's probably, if it was me, I guarantee you, just stick with me. Right? I'd be like, hey, let's be reasonable here. Let's all just get some sleep. We can do this in the morning. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. So Jesus-y. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them Many things. Translation, long sermon. Okay? I mean, he taught them many things. And then Luke adds in verse 9, chapter 9, 11, 
that they also had ministry time where they were healing people and delivering them from demons. If you've ever been part of ministry time in a charismatic ministry, it's like lines, a hundred people deep, waiting for some deliverance, and the exhausted team just praying over them, fighting spiritually for them. It is one of the most draining kinds of ministry you can do. I'd rather dig a hundred ditches than have ministry. It's just so draining. And yet because Jesus is their leader, he was moved by the needs of the crowd, and he rallied his team, and they went to work. Mark goes on to say, by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so that they could go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. After hours of this ministry, the whole crew was exhausted. They'd started on empty, and now it was just vapors running the engine. They weren't sure when they were going to keel over. And so it's not surprising to me that they look at the crowd as vast as they are. They see how hungry these people are, and they go, Lord, what? these people need to eat. We've been at it all day. I'm starving. And so their suggestion is let's just send them into the towns all around and say, get yourself some food and come back. I don't know about you, but it sounds like a really practical, reasonable solution. They had given up their retreat in order to minister to these people. They had put their needs above their own. They had labored for hours, and their starting point was already zero. They were empty, and they still gave. And so it's not unreasonable to say to them, we've done everything we could for your souls, for your bodies, but is it really our responsibility to feed you too? Before you ran out of your houses to come listen to this man, couldn't you maybe have packed a satchel of food? Now, I know that if you love the poor, that's almost offensive to think in that way. But these men were wondering, where is the boundary marker of the burden I have to bear for everyone else? I'm barely making it. I'm running on empty. Do I really have to keep rising up to take care of everyone else all the time? And so I find Jesus' response kind of startling because they'd made a very reasonable suggestion. And Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. You. I put it in red because... That's the heaviest all-capital word in that sentence. You give them something to eat. It's like, us? What about you, Jesus? You're the Son of God. How about you? I'll give them something to eat. You help me serve. But he goes, no, you give them something to eat. And really what Jesus is saying, you got to make sure you don't get the wrong message here. Jesus isn't saying self-care is unnecessary. He's not saying that at all. Like I said in the beginning, every time self-care pops up, it's always Jesus' idea, never his followers. Self-care matters. You've got to rest. You've got to recuperate. He wasn't saying either that we should all develop a Messiah complex. That you have to save everyone all the time, 24-7, never stop. Because if you do that, there's no end to it. No boundaries, nothing. You will always, always have someone else whose crisis becomes your own. 
Now, we have to go much further than we have in bearing the burdens of others. But there's a limit as well. Jesus is not saying, be everyone's savior or deny your need for self-care. No, he loved these men. And in this particular occasion, he had a very specific plan for them. He wanted them to learn something they could only learn under these conditions. And so he says to them, you take some responsibility for this impossibly huge need. It's tempting to say, you take care of yourself or look to me and go, God, you just work a miracle. But this time he's saying to them, I want you at your place of greatest emptiness to still stand up and take some responsibility. It's hard to hear, but here's how Jesus can say such a thing with a straight face. In John's version of these events, he alone records a private conversation that Jesus had with Philip, one of the 12 disciples. And in John's account, he says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he turns to Philip and he says, hey, Phil, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Philip, of course, being good at math, he's like, later he he says, hey, there's no way if we took all the money we had and bought bread, everyone maybe could take one bite and then we'd be broke. Are you crazy? But look at verse 6, how important that is. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. He loved these men. He didn't want to just dump on them this huge God-sized burden and walk away. He wanted them to feel the weight of what it means to really love broken, needy people in a broken, needy world. That even when you're at empty, someone has to care. God always cares, and he wanted them to experience his heart, but he also wanted them to experience something else. It is only when you are empty entirely of all your own power that you really get the clearest view of what the power of God looks like, feels like. You know how when you're learning to ride a bike, And you're wondering, am I doing it on my own? Am I doing it? Or is my dad still holding the back of the bike? You keep looking back like, Dad, are you still holding it? Are you still holding it? And you're wondering, because you're never sure who's doing what. And when you're not at empty, when you still have something left, you're not sure, am I the crusader? Am I everyone's deliverer? Am I the one who has a soft heart running around caring for everyone? Is this just me in the flesh, brokenhearted, trying to save the world? Or is this really the supernatural, divine, all-changing power of God? What power is doing the work right now? And when I have power left, I'm not always sure which power is running the show. It's when we're totally empty that we have the most profound experience of being filled with the power of God. When you have nothing left to offer and yet you still try to stand up and say, I hear the call. I'm done. I got nothing left, but I will stand up. If that's all I can manage, I will stand up in the presence of my God and just say yes. Then, in that place, something profound happens. And something begins to fill you that you cannot explain. If you accomplish anything after that point, it can only be because the power of God filled you, not because you did it on your own. This challenge to his disciples is not a call 
to self-reliance and grit and determination. That's what many of us would like for this to be because that's how we're wired. Just dig deep, let's go! Tom Brady for Hurts. Let's go. Is that the mantra of heaven? Rouse yourself. Dig deep. Suck it up. Let's go. That is the human message of this age, is we can do everything by ourselves. We're amazing. There's no limit to what human beings, when they put their mind to it, can accomplish. And I say that's a lie from the pit of hell. There is absolutely a limit to what we can do. But there's no limit to what God can do. Jesus is not calling his followers to grit and self-reliance, but to faith and surrender. He's saying right now, just standing up and saying yes will just about kill you. But if you will do that, if you will give me just that, I already plan to do the hardest parts. Now the scale, the mathematics of this particular miracle are staggering. 5,000 families, not just 5,000 people. They only counted the men because it was a sexist time. You have to estimate maybe a crowd of 15,000, 20,000 people. 5,000 families, 12 men. And as far as they knew, it wasn't going to be a 13th because Jesus was like, you, give them something to eat. So they're doing the math quickly. They take out their iPhones, and they realize it's 417 families per disciple. I have to feed 417 families. <laughs> You're just like, man, I, I, I don't know how this is going to happen. And then Jesus asked them a crazy question. You would expect after they obeyed him, stood up, surrendered, said yes, that he would now stand back, watch this. Bam! And then bread, just manna coming down. That's not what he does. He asked them another crazy question. He goes, hey, how much bread do you have? And me being sarcastic, I'd be like, not enough. Why do we even have to count? I I could just tell you right now, not enough. But he asked them a serious question. How much bread do you have? And you could tell that they stood around like, is he serious? So he goes, go and find out. When he says that, I just, I picture they're like all standing numb. He goes, move. It's not rhetorical. Go find out how much bread do you have on hand? And so they run around the camp, come back, and they say, we found five loaves and two fish. Here's what I love about that part of the story. Jesus could conjure up enough food from nothing. But he gives them the dignity of playing some small part. And he just says to them, what do you have? in your hands right now. You don't have enough for this. There's no way the math works out. When you see the enormity of the need, you don't have enough on the best day of your life. But what do you have? What do you have right now? It may not seem like much. Compared to the size of the need, it may seem pathetically small, but that's all you could ever bring to God is what you have in your hands. That's all you have. And so they come back and say, this is it. I'm not sure how we're supposed to feed all these people, but what I have in my hand is five loaves of bread and two fish. And if it stays in my hands, it will never be enough. But I surrender that to Jesus. 
and it changes hands, suddenly miracles happen. Being in ministry has been one of my great privileges to walk with people whose hearts God had jolted with a vision, a conviction, and they had a passion for something that is so ridiculous. I heard it the first time. I'm like, good for you. And then I turn around and go, honey, I, I tell my wife, that's huge. I just don't, I can't picture how that's going to happen. But I see the fire in there. I say, it's going to happen. And I think this is of God. Only God makes people this bad at math and this audacious. And so they go for it. And all they have is, oh, here's what I got. I got one friend. I got my story. I've got a hundred bucks. I'm going to do something. And if you're an immigrant, that's probably the story your parents told you. We came over here with six quarters and determination. Now we're millionaires. You're like, I feel like you're not really being honest with me. But that's the story of every immigrant. We started with nothing. Somehow, by a miracle, it grew. I've seen that story play out so many times over the years of my ministry. Where someone with a vision said, what do you got to start with? Uh, We have this. I want to change education for impoverished girls in this whole nation. What do you got? Two girls in a village and the room where we do our laundry is open right now. And you have a, a burden for the whole country. Yes. And in my human thinking, I'm like, never. No way. You visit that person 10 years later, that movement has blazed like a fire across the whole country. Girls in school buildings all over the nation learning to read for the first time. This is what God does. And he could do it without you, but he doesn't. He does it with you. And what you can bring, the only thing you can bring to an impossible task is what you're holding in your hand. It will never seem like enough. Some of you work in jobs every day where the brokenness of the world is in your face and you look at it and you go, we can't fix this. It's just too broken. It's too much. If you're in education, social work, politics, law enforcement, maybe even medicine, Certainly if you're in ministry and you're honest about the brokenness of this world, it's too much. But if you will bring to Jesus what little you're holding and say it's all yours, you'd be amazed what he can do with that. God meets impossibly great needs with impossibly small resources. Our obedient faith plus God's unlimited power can change everything. I'm walking with some people right now, and we're at the cusp of ministries like that. And I can feel the electricity in the air because things are already moving. And I just think this, what this will become, will shock us two years from now. Because it will exceed our wildest imagination. That is how God so often works when people are surrendered to him. This morning, we're joined by my friend, Pastor Tony Minnelli from Albania. And so I've shortened my message because I want to make some time for him to share some of his story and the story of his nation. We're sending a team of youth and hopefully young adults to that country this summer. 
And I, I'm so grateful that his visit coincided with this message because the story of Albania is a story of an impossibly great need, a nation-sized need. And God is meeting that need with a very small resource that is being multiplied every day. Pastor Tony, would you come on the stage with me? And, and I'd just like to, for, to have you listen in as I just uh, chat with Pastor Tony and really invite him to share some of his story. If your child is going to be going to Albania with us this summer, please open your hearts. If you're one of the students going, I want to make sure that after the service, you make your way up to the front and meet Pastor Tony if you've applied for this team. I want you to have a chance to get to see him and say hello before he leaves. And Tony, thank you for being here. It's a joy and a pleasure for me. So thank you for having me here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I met Pastor Tony at a pastor's luncheon about, what, four years ago, three, three years ago? Yeah. And you know how sometimes you meet people and you're like, I don't know why we're meeting each other. We'll probably never see each other again. The minute I met him, I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> our paths are going to cross again. And I'm just so grateful to have spent time with him in Albania this past year. Could you share briefly uh, with us about the history of Christianity and religion in Albania? Yeah. I don't know how much you know about Albania, but Albania is mentioned in the Bible. And if you go to the book of Romans, Romans 15:19, Apostle Paul says, From Jerusalem all the way around until Illyricum, I fully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Illyricum is present-day Albania. And then this is how the gospel came into the first century in our country. And Titus also was martyred in Albania. And... Um, this is how the, many, the first churches were planted in the first century. But in the 14th century, Turkish Ottoman Empire invaded Albania, and they started to imply many Islamic rules. And then as a result of that, majority of Albanian population converted to Islam. Uh, right now we have like 68% of our population is nominally Muslim, but also there are some radical after the communism fell. People went up in the Middle East to study Islam, and they are trying to do the same what we do. But right after the war, Second World War, Albania in Albania, communism was established, and our dictator he decided that God is going to be pulled out of our country. Albania is the first atheist country from 1969 till 1991. Faith in God in any kind of religion was totally forbidden. Many people have been put in the prison, were killed, and when communism fell down, we had only 16, one six known evangelical believers in the entire country. So we have been for 560 years of a dark situation. People were dying, and we are one of the poorest countries in Europe, but I'm amazed how God could turn bad situation like our history to a good ones because the gospel once more time visited our country because of many prayers being done by people in the states but all over the world and I'm thankful for each one of you could be maybe you've been praying for open for Albania because Albania was as isolated as the North Korea is now we were not uh, having connection with outside so Campus Crusade, the mission organization that I am working, they came in 1991 and they started to do ministry with the Jesus film and then uh, 
they sent a team for seven Americans. They came for one year, but they stayed longer. Some they stayed for 20 years, and now we are 115 staff, full-time staff. Majority of the full-time staff from crew are from a Muslim background, as I am. And uh, yeah, shortly that's our story. Thanks, Tony. I, but I know the communism guys... was very hard. So probably you may know how in North Korea it is, but. You guys, I don't know if you caught that, but under the communist dictator, it was declared the first actual atheist state. It wasn't just that religion was made illegal, yeah. but that atheism was the state faith statement. It was yeah, the faith yeah. position. And uh, for decades, I think yeah. communism fell and religious freedom was reinstated in December 91? Yes, December right? 91, yes. Yeah, and so for decades, people who had grown up historically... Um, Muslim and Christian had no faith expression at all. And what did you say when, when communism fell? There were 16 Christians in the whole country. Yeah, yeah. because in the 18th century we had some uh, spiritual awakeness in our country, but the communism, they destroyed and only 16 people remained. So. so can you share with us a little bit of your own journey? You said you had a Muslim background, but how did you come to faith and how did you end up in ministry? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was 17 years old, and then uh, I was in the third year of high school, and uh, one of my classmates, she was a believer because of her sister was, and shared the gospel with her. And then uh, also the teacher from our school, she was giving us uh, biology, and uh, she was a Christian too. And then in that hour, we have discussed about which religion is true, Christianity or uh, Muslim faith, and then uh, we spent all that, that hour talking about religion, and I said, I am a Muslim, I do not have anything in common with Jesus, and then together with some others, we were arguing against that, and then the next hour was physics, and then uh, we wanted to ask the same question to our professor, because we didn't want to do lesson, and then uh, <laughs> uh, the professor, he was smart, and he said, uh, he didn't want to go the whole hour. And he said, just look the West and the East, and then you could figure out who is the true religion. And he was meaning that because of the development that is in the West, Christianity is the true religion. That was the first thing that made me think, oh, maybe Christianity could be the true religion. And then I asked my friend, can you give me a Bible? I want to read and learn more. And then uh, she said, yeah, I can find you, but you, couldn't, you need to buy it. And I buy the first Bible. <laughs> And then uh, I read the Gospel of John for three, two or three hours. I like history. And then uh, for the first time in my life, I heard that Jesus, God, loves me like I am. In those teenage years, I was trying to please my uncles and my parents. And then I was trying to win their love and acceptance. But knowing that God loves me like I am and is the closest one, not that far, because for our Muslim faith, uh, we see God as strange and not the uh, closest one, and then that was the first thing. Later on, I went to the university. I met people from Campus Crusade, and they invited me in their Bible study, weekly meetings, and then I learned more about God, how could I have a relationship. And all, not only that, but also they sent me to a um, summer camp, and we have been showing Jesus' film in the villages. I was appointed a team leader, and I have another five people. I have all the Jesus film equipments, and I was in the other part of the town. And they said, go and share the Jesus film for three times in three different villages. Being there 18 or old year, 
alone i was oh only you god could do that i could not do because we were depending on the people they will uh, welcome us let us to show the jesus film but praise the lord it was wonderful the three nights and then we turned for another three nights in the all each village we showed the jesus film that was a great experience for me to see god answer the prayers also use us and uh, because of this good uh, experience, then I extended my ministry for nine months, doing follow-up from to the, every village the project was going and showing the film. And then for nine months I've been doing Bible study. I've seen God use us and my team change people's life and bring joy. And that was the way God called me into full-time ministry. And I joined Campus Crusade in 2003. For seven years I've done high school ministry. From 2010 till now, I've been doing more church planting ministry, and yeah, I'm in planting the third church, church right now. Thank you. What's interesting is in the United States, Campus Crusade is a parachurch ministry. It's a campus ministry. We don't really associate it with mm-hmm. being a church. But in your case, you work for Campus Crusade, which is now called Crew, but you're a church planter. Yes. Yeah, we have made that shift in Albania in 2011. And then because of the Jesus film history, we could land more churches to plant more churches. But uh, that time we were not allowed. But since 2011, now we could do church planting ministry. Yeah. Even though I could be on staff just for the administration part. So. And can you just share with us briefly, what is your vision for Albania? Um, yeah, I believe God is sovereign. I believe that God uh, is not coincidentally raising Albanians now because after communism now we are more than 35,000 evangelical believers, still uh, less than 1% of our population. But comparing to what we were and what we are now is a great work from God. And But uh, we believe that God wants that we could not only reach Albania but also to Muslim countries because of our heritage 500 years under Ottoman Empire we could understand the language the culture of Muslim faith and I'm going in uh, Istanbul after Easter with a team of people to share the gospel with the college students over there and I believe that planting churches reaching Albanians reaching young leaders then we could be able to play a small part reaching the Muslim world, in, even in surrounding countries. So planting churches who plant churches, and probably in the summer camp that we have ahead of us, probably we are going to reach the new leaders of the church, Albanian church. This is the case when we, uh, you met Pation seven years ago. He was not a believer, but now he's leading a church. So my desire, our vision is that we could plant churches who could, not only one church, but churches that plant churches. And tell us a little bit about when we send a team to do an English camp, how does that fit together with the ministry of your church? Uh, I think we, during the, week, the year, uh, we do a lot of evangelism, discipleship, and then also we have some trainings for the key leaders and key disciples. We want to equip them to do ministry, and uh, we see summer camp as the main uh, point or highlight of the year because in that time all the efforts that we do from connecting with people, doing evangelism, discipling our leaders, they will invite their friends and then we'll have uh, probably 40 to 50 young adults or kids and then 
we will do evangelism and then by reaching them they will be the next disciples of our movement our churches and so yeah that's our hope that through the summer camps we will see God at work because we've been working all the year and also praying trusting the Lord that he is going to use us can I ask you guys to join me as we pray for Pastor Tony and his team and for the nation of Albania Lord, we thank you for the way that you're moving through a country where human beings tried to suppress you, even to make you illegal, and yet no one can stop your kingdom. And even a pinprick of light is more powerful than a world full of darkness. And we thank you for the truth of that and for the way that the gospel is being carried all throughout Albania. We pray for your anointing over the crew staff throughout the country who are carrying the gospel faithfully. Give them a fresh vision. We pray that they would never become entrenched in Christianity simply as a way of life, a culture, but that it would always remain the powerful, life-changing good news of the kingdom of God. And we pray for Christianity in Albania to be thriving and fresh and that the ministry of these church plants and these English camps will be a part of the story of thousands who will go from being in darkness to being in light. We pray for Pastor Tony and for Ulta and their whole team, for Pastor Fation and Anissa, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and provide for them every resource that is needed to be obedient to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. We give him a hand as he sits back down. Thanks, Tony. I shared with you guys before that I'm easily inspired and easily distracted. And so as a result, couple that with my OCD, I would pray for the countries of the world through Operation World. And every time I broke my streak, I'd start over. And so because Albania is the second country in that book, I prayed for Albania like 500 times. And this is the result, I think, of that is we have this ministry now. And I'm amazed at the way the gospel is moving. He mentioned uh, Pastor Fation, who if you go to Albania, you will meet. He was a young man who came to one of these English camps, met Christ, was deeply moved. And currently, he works as a call center representative for Apple Computer. But he, his vision is to become a full-time pastor. He's already leading a church plant just outside the capital city of Tirana called Agape Church. Pastor Tony leads a church right in the heart of the city called City Church. Um, I, I visited it. Some pictures, yeah. So here's City Church. And do we have a picture of Agape Church as well? And then you can see, if you can find the picture of Pastor Tony and his family... And by the way, Tony is short for Elton, like Elton John. And then there is Pastor Fatione, Anissa, and their son Amos. I think you have a picture of their family as well. Is there a picture of... It look, Fatione is spelled like it's pronounced Fatjohn, F-A-T-J-O-N. You see, do you have a slide of his family in there? You don't? Okay. All right. Maybe there's, a, there's not a slide in there. I really appreciate that when we go as a team to lead an English camp, that it's not a hit-and-run ministry, 
but it is us serving the church. The church then really does ministry around the clock for the students who come to these camps. Many of them are led to Christ, discipled, and find a pathway to become Christian leaders in a country where the gospel is really spreading like fire. It's our privilege to play a small part in that. I'm so thankful that we met and that our churches can develop a partnership. You know, I think about the daunting challenge of communism falling and freedom being restored, and you look at an entire nation, and there's 16 brothers and sisters to do the job. I want you to just think about the math of that and how similar it is to the situation Jesus and his disciples found themselves in. And yet what these men and women did was they brought to Jesus whatever they had. Right now, they can barely afford to make a living in ministry, but they're still doing everything they can, and God is multiplying it, and I am moved by their story. You know, it's easy to believe that if you want to do great things for God, you have to be a great person, and you have to have great resources. Nothing could be further from the truth. All we need is great faith and great surrender because we have a great God. If you ever get moved to do something more than make, make money, there's nothing wrong with making money, but if you ever catch a vision for something beyond that, for what that money could be, what your life could mean, and it feels too big to be realistic, always remember this story. Reach into your pocket and say, I don't need to go to college. I don't need to become a millionaire. I don't need X, Y, Z. What do I have right now? This is all that it takes. This is enough. You give that to Jesus, he will do something miraculous with that. I've been praying all week, and I'm going to continue to pray for our church, that he would begin touching some of you. And I've especially been praying for the youth group and the college group. I hope that God will rescue you from wasting your life that he will bother your spirit with a vision that only he is big enough to fulfill. Please don't just be ordinary. Give your whole life to the kingdom of God. He will do something extraordinary with your life. And if anyone else tells you that's crazy, you are on the right track. So with that, I'm going to invite us to just bow for a moment. Um, We do have some announcements to get through, so I just want to give you a minute. Just think about everything you've heard and what God might be stirring right now in you. And then just respond to God in your own voice. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.